Things are going our way. The town is in panic, the army is shaken, and so is the government. How can you be sure? Because the man who's taken charge is an old acquaintance of mine, Oscar Goldman. And Oscar only shows up when there is big trouble. indicates ultra-high-frequency alpha waves such as produced by government research project H-432. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another installment of the IMMP podcast. My name is Matthew Porter. And I'm Ian Porter. I'm his dad, he's my son, and we have watched television once again. Oh, I kind of should have seen this one coming at some point. This was inevitable. This Absolutely was. Inevitable. This is one of those, this is definitely one of those shows I know of from cultural osmosis but had never seen in its original form and so actually getting to was a an interesting prospect to begin with so i was i was excited to go in with the into this and intrigued leaving so I, but yeah i i kind of known just enough i'd known some of the stylistic stuff but the narrative aspects were the parts unknown so actually diving in was was fascinating for that reason and you can imagine how how this show loomed large in the the mind of an eight year old sci fi fan, budding sci fi fan, back in the uh, the first half of the seventies. Oh, absolutely! This this is a toyetic show of a of a very clear nature. The number of action figures and playsets that came up in Google searches trying to research more about this was surprising to me there's a lot of that market still out there trading around these inbox figurines and such i had a model that i i don't think it's still in a box downstairs although i won't say that it's impossible it was snapped together but you had to paint it and it was the it was one of these action scene plastic models of the bionic bust out oh boy oh oh and that kind of gives it away we are talking about the Six Million Dollar Man. <laughs> I'm not going to try to recreate the sound effect more than that one time, but... <laughs> but everybody has a version of that that they do. Everybody knows that sound effect. That yep. That is part of... That is what goes through your head when you hear that title. Either that or the line, we can rebuild him, we have the technology. Is there any... Uh, I'd say there are more than, than there are fewer American males who have, when picking up something heavy at some point in their life, made that noise. <laughs> this is, he- I-, I didn't think I could pick this up. <laughs> oh. But yeah, this was, this was a pretty important show. Not that I remember it in great detail, but the details that I remembered really did stick with me, because this is the first time I've watched this since maybe I watched a few reruns around 1980, early 80s. So okay. this was coming back to this after quite some time. This was this was really double checking your memory against the actual product because you had enough time to let it get away from you in that sense. Right. And it was interesting to see because I remembered the things that stuck with me as a kid. And the way that the show changed was was not part of my memory of it. I think I probably remembered the later seasons better, naturally, for a few reasons that we'll talk about. But even from the very beginning of the show, there were scenes, there were lines, there were things about it that really had stuck in my memory. And, oh, yeah, absolutely, that's what I remembered. Things that I knew I was going to see going into this. And, yeah, sure enough, there it is. 
It really is a show that changed over time, though. Even with you saying that it had that staying power from the beginning, the the later series is a different kind of thing than those early TV movies. No question about it. And you know, it's interesting. It's, it's been interesting revisiting a lot of this stuff for uh, for the podcast and watching it with you. That's kind of become a theme. We originally approached this podcast and you know, with the idea that how is my perspective on this going to be different coming back to it so many years later? And how is yours going to be different coming to it fresh you know, from a different generation? But one thing that we're seeing consistently that I hadn't thought about before is sampling things the way we are. We do get a chance to see how they change, whether it's a movie series like The Thin Man, whether it's a TV series. Sometimes it's very dramatic and clearly they may intended to make a change. Sometimes it's a slow evolution. But anything that lasts more than a couple of seasons, it changes dramatically and in interesting ways. Oh, absolutely. There are three distinct stylings I saw over this slice across the entirety of The Six Million Dollar Man. And each of them I relate to a different media grouping, a different set of related shows. And I found that very fascinating. That first TV movie screamed Sherlock Holmes to me. <laughs> and I was not expecting that. It's an in- The entirety of the series starts out with a a man very skilled at his set of abilities, partially naturally, partially enhanced there, but it's all narrated by a doctor, kind of giving an after-action report with clips into what's going on of how everything went down. And that structure was just like one of those Sherlock Holmes stories narrated by Dr. Watson. And they almost kind of give him a 7% solution of wanting to go back to the moon. When he's down in the thing, he (laughs) reminisces about having been to the moon. And that's the thing that gets him back into it. And it was weird, because once I saw that parallel, I couldn't unsee it. That is terrific. I never thought about that. But you're right, the the doctor narrator and this this, this person being the focus of his career is this one patient of his. You're right, that is very... Holmes and Watson like. And I and that kind of set an expectation that then was shattered like half, oh, a, yeah. <laughs> half a movie and start of a series later. So I'm having whiplash of thinking that I understand what I'm getting into here, and it's not that. And then this it, it morphs into James Bond, but I am the gadget. And I'm getting off track here, but still. He turns into a spy. Well, I don't know, it turns into he, he- the whole point is he starts out this that way. Let's back up a little bit. I, yeah. I, probably anybody listening to this knows the basic premise, but let's establish the baseline premise that they give us in the pilot. There's Steve Austin, played by Lee Majors, and he's consistent through the series. There are a lot of other casting changes through the series and some character changes, but he is consistent from the very beginning as Lee Majors, as Steve Austin, who is an astronaut. He's been to the moon at least once. Sometimes I get the impression he went to the moon more than once. Yeah, how how much time he's spent on the moon seems to be dependent on the writer for this episode and how much they want him to be a fish out of water with other people. And after his participation in the moon program, he is a test pilot for advanced NASA aircraft, one of which does not go well. And it crashes. And he is is um, 
horribly injured. Yeah, he is horribly injured. He's going to lose both his legs. He's going to lose an arm, going to lose an eye. And meanwhile, coincidentally, the well, in, in the pilot, it's called the Office of Strategic Operations. But through most of the series, it's OSI, the uh, Office of Scientific Intelligence. Or maybe I think OSO might have been Special Operations or something. They have an idea or a plan. They have a need for a particular kind of operative, because there are times when the abilities of one normal man would not be enough, just one person sneaking in somewhere. And yet, we can't just throw in large numbers of troops with armor and such. So let's build someone who is part machine, who has the the the, the stealth and abilities of an individual and the power of an armor unit. If we want to multi-class something that has charisma and high <laughs> HP, we can do that now. But the the that setup right there is interesting because I very much appreciated that once they had this plan, it wasn't quick to implement. They actually went through the fact that okay, what is his, what are his injuries? Okay, that's where we can work. And they start building an arm, two legs and an eye right there because that's what he lost. It wasn't, oh, thank goodness he lost the same things as this thing we've got in the cooler over here. <laughs> and that he's the right height. <laughs> and that he's the right height. A lot of other media that I've seen would kind of skip over that R&D phase and the entire R&D segment is a, is like an idea throughout all of this. There's a lot of the on, the idea of the field test and the limitations of the tech they put into him. He can do a thing, he can't do anything. And they're playing this very much as we're taking a risk and we've got a limit. The 6 million dollar man isn't 6 million dollar just because he's valuable. But that's the budget. This is how much it cost to make him, and we squeezed every bit we could out of the $6 million we put into him because we didn't have a penny more at times. And we get a certain amount of kind of the ruthless, soulless government intelligence person behind all this. In the pilot, it's uh, Oliver Spencer of the OSO, played by Darren McGavin. Darren McGavin somebody else, or some, someone we're going to talk about in this podcast in the future. Ooh. But he plays the the um, the OSO. I don't know if he's the chief or just chief of this program. And although they intercut what's happening to Steve in this test flight gone wrong with Oliver Spencer talking to the committee who has to approve this project about about what the project is. But I do get the impression that he proposed this project and got approval for it, and then they just waited for the right subject to come along. Because one of the last things we see him say to the committee is when, when they're asking, well, who's going to do this? Are you going to ask for volunteers? And he says, well, that won't be necessary. Accidents happen all the time. I was so astounded that they didn't seem to follow through with the idea that it wasn't an accident. That line <laughs> seemed so sinister to me that I was absolutely certain a narrative through line could be wondering whether or not he was set up. I think today they might. That someone from OSO would would sabotage a multi-million dollar NASA program in order to get a subject for his multi-million dollar OSO operative program. The only thing there is, 
you sabotage a an experimental lifting body aircraft so that it crashes so you can claim the pieces of the pilot you're taking a big risk that there are going to be pieces left to work with yeah i mean in some ways it was very neat that he lost two legs an arm and an eye not minimizing those injuries but that's exactly what you would want to replace for a super soldier secret agent mm-hmm. engineering a plane crash is not an effective way to make sure you get the appropriate injuries shall we say oh absolutely the idea of following that as a narrative thread is i think a bad idea <laughs> oh you did. i'm saying that that is a horrible kind of lazy drama move that i would expect from a show that was not as well written or a modern show that didn't have the thought of the other options the fact that this did not go for that is an impressively interesting thing and i got nervous it was going to go for that low-hanging fruit when that line happened okay so i misunderstood you're not saying this is a missed opportunity you're saying this is a dodged bullet exactly got it (laughs) (laughs) so that is our premise that oso has spent six million dollars to to turn steve austin into a super secret agent by giving him this bionic technology, which does not, of course, just give him back the abilities he lost when he lost his uh, his limbs and his eye, but give him super strength and super speed and supervision. Well, not not supervision. They they do supervise him, but the ability to see things really good with how much they control his life, they really do give him a lot of supervision. There's a lot more of the like, I don't want to be here. You have to be here. I don't want to be here. You have to. Where is he? He jumped out the window, sir. Ah, dang it. There's a lot more of that in early $6 million man than I expected. A lot of Frankenstein running out into the village kind of narrative parallels as well. And especially early on, there's all that there's there's a lot of friction between Steve Austin and essentially what he's now obligated to do. And this is not really clear. They I don't think he consented, okay, you give me these superpowers and I will be your operative. He didn't really want to be a super, a secret agent, super soldier operative, at least not at the beginning. And the relationship between Oliver Spencer and Steve Austin was very combative. As the series goes on and Oliver Spencer is replaced with a different character, Oscar Goldman, we see a little bit of that conflict between Austin and Goldman at the beginning. It diminishes over time, which both make sense because there's only so much you can you can play that conflict between the two of them for drama. And it also, I think, makes sense that if they're working together for years and Steve is now doing this job, they're going to get along better at some point. I think part of it is they just wanted to get away from that aspect of it because it, the show began as a medical drama in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah. And a government, not government conspiracy, but what's happening behind the scenes in these super secret projects in the government kind of of series. And that makes sense for the pilot, but it really is not an indication of what we're going to get later on. No. Yeah. It, it starts with that, you know, that mystery medical drama thriller. He's there to not be found out as bionic and get in and out of situations. He is, In those early movies, he's dealing with large-scale arms dealers and trade of that sort of nature, and there's that that 
Sherlock Holmes into James Bond transition I'm describing where he he's doing things with this reluctance, but then high level of skill. And he's got a little bit of quippiness and a lot of schmoozing as he doesn't get noticed into a place and then wall busting my way out when I found (laughs) the thing. And throughout, especially those first few TV movies, because there were three TV movies, two of which we've watched, and then there were about five seasons of, of TV series. And throughout the first TV movies, and I say the beginning of the series, I can almost hear the network notes that were given between each of them. Because you're absolutely right about it turning into James Bond. In the first one, it is very much this medical-slash-government drama. And at the very end, we get Steve Austin being sent out uh, on a, a mission to rescue hostages from a terrorist group. And I almost get the impression that was dropped in to show the network, here's some of the action you can expect if you let us make more movies about this uh, character. But then in the second one, the first thing we see is he's at a fancy party and he's wearing a tuxedo. And it's like, it's you can hear someone saying, but you said this was a secret agent thing. James Bond is the popular secret agent everybody's spending money on. Give me James Bond. So fine, we'll put him in a tux. It starts with tuxes and swimming out to the boat and making your contact on time and ends with casual nuclear detonation. This is absolutely a James Bond film. That that second TV movie is wild. And then later on, the government secret agent parts of this drop off a bit. More and more of them are about what to the extent that it's a government secret agent type thing. It's about rescuing hostages. It's about it's not about the kind of things the CIA and its equivalents were really doing in the early 70s. It's about rah-rah, we're good guys kind of things, naturally. But over time, it gets even farther away from that, and it just becomes, we are good guy adventurers, and what are we doing? You know, now now we're saving somebody from a flood, and then next we're protecting geologists who are going to save us all from earthquakes. And it's... it's it, it, it reminds me very much of what happened to G.I. Joe Absolutely. during the 70s, when G.I. Joe, back when G.I. Joe, before G.I. Joe shrunk, back when he was still about 12 inches tall. And in the 70s, military things were not quite as popular for easy to understand historical reasons. So G.I. Joe stopped being an identifiable as a soldier or Navy sailor or Marine, and G.I. Joe... They were all in the adventure, adventure team. team. Yes, the adventure team era. Because as of coming from the the toy design side, there was so much more available to other creators at that time. Because honestly, once you left that field, you get a wide variety of new things you can do, and a wide variety of plastic accessories to sell alongside your figurine that are different design than you've dealt with before. So that means people <laughs> buy them, and there was actually it did pretty well, if I remember, when they did that transition. It did not bad, and definitely the six million dollar man stuff is following in that. They run out of some steam on the the spy adventure side, and they start expanding into this other stuff in part to change with the times. And also they get a wild new variety of types of stories they can tell once they move into that defenders of science kind of mode. 
And the other network note I can kind of hear in my head as I watch these changes occur is, is about demographics. The, at the beginning, this was not for kids. This was, especially that pilot, this was dark. This was horrible injuries and a, uh, a, a former astronaut who is asking his nurse to let him die. Yeah. And this was a, a dark, heavy medical drama, not for kids. I probably watched it at the time, <laughs> but not for kids. This explains a lot. And later on, obviously, they're realizing we've got a an aspirational, handsome, witty astronaut with superpowers. Kids love this. This is a superhero show. Let's write it as a superhero show. Oh, yeah. And that is more and more what it became. So you got less of the darkness, you got less of the government intrigue, and more of the, is there a day to be saved? Let's have Steve Austin save it with his superpowers. And quips. And quips. Lots of quips. A lot of the toys and such I noticed online are from the later seasons. That makes sense. Where they made that transition and that push. And it, it, it's really much, it's a, it's a reverse Doctor Who. Doctor Who started as a kid's show and got darker and changed over time to the brand being targeted very differently now. And meanwhile, the Six Million Dollar Man starts dark and gets lighter. That's a, a great point. And, That's a great point. And they both kind of, and in some ways they wind up crossing at some point because by the end of the series, it is getting silly and weird with its science. Now- it's important to note, though, we, we as adults are saying it got sillier, it got lighter. As a kid watching this, as a 10-year-old watching this, this was serious stuff. <laughs> How is Steve Austin going to get out of this? The, wow, is he going to be able to save all these people, and what's going to happen to him? And I got to watch next week to find out what happens. This was, was, this was not, let's watch it and, and laugh along with it. This was, wow, this is important stuff. We need to find out what happens. Oh, yeah. It takes itself extremely seriously. I don't think it could succeed if it didn't. It plays its premise very straight. Steve Austin sometimes has a, a wry sense of humor about it, but that's the character within this situation he finds himself in, and that's one of his survival mechanisms, I would say now. Mm -hmm. But it's not, but the, the show itself is not played for laughs in any way. And no, I think no, that's no. important. That is very important because if it played itself for laughs at any moment, the entire premise would fall apart. The the closest they ever get to a laugh is of the few instances of I'm too strong for my daily life. Little things like the I'm cheating at tennis with super speed legs <laughs> and a bionic targeting eye and kind of annoying my good friend here is the closest they get into silly, and that's just a, I'm being a little annoying in a ribbing fun way. That's the closest I think they do. Right, and it's believable that the character would do this. Absolutely. That would would, would uh, you know, beat an old buddy at tennis doing that. And another part of that shift is that it becomes more and more of a sci-fi show. Oh, yeah. In that it starts out, it's undeniably science fiction. We are postulating this new science and engineering of bionics. How many times and did it? That's the, that's that is the big um, 
scientific leap at the beginning, and everything else flows from that. It's a secret agent show, adventure show, in which we've got this bionic character. The whole world becomes sci-fi-ish later on. Absolutely. In the start of the show, I mean, the, the name stays the $6 million man the entire time. The start of the show, they are referencing how much he cost and how expensive he was to the government and such. By the way, uh, $34,837,432.43 if translated for today's uh, exchange rate. That is a pretty cheap uh, government program. Yeah, that's a pretty standards. cheap government program. They're really pinching the pennies there. But they're mentioning how much money he cost and how much of a risk it is so often. And then by the end of the series, it's just, I can do this thing. It's almost, <laughs> there's something almost, ah, oh, great, I'm a little outdated tech-wise <laughs> by the end, where he's he's impressive, he's beyond what a man could do, but there's this little bit of a, I don't want to have to go through the bother of replacing this arm, this is my arm now, while they deal with all this greater future tech that sometimes is outstripping his ability. He actually runs into things stronger than him later in the series and such. And that's a, that is also a change. And that may have been a focus change as it got more kid friendly. It may have been something they just decided it was in some ways easier to write or easier to shoot because the way it was presented initially, it was kind of, we need one man who can stand up against an armor unit. And that's kind of what we saw at the beginning. It was the fact that Steve Austin, as one guy who looks unarmed, can destroy a tank or can take out a whole group of armed terrorists. And then it becomes, we want more one-on-one -on -one battles of Steve Austin versus something as strong as Steve Austin. And that's one of the reasons we get more sci-fi along the way. And the turning point there, I think, was the Day of the Robot episode. Oh. Because before that, we had the pilot, which we saw some secret agent type stuff. We saw the, the second movie, which was very James Bondy, uh, with casinos and women and, and, and an arms uh, dealer who was uh, selling not only missiles, but offering for sale a Polaris submarine. <laughs> that uh, was a whole thing. Yeah, it's like... It was not a bad James Bond plot for a TV movie. Yeah, this is this is a great like store brand James Bond story. And then we get uh, Firefly, where he is trying to find a apparently kidnapped scientist who has developed a bioluminescent driven laser. That one was freaky. That one was very very interesting because it was it was a lot of. How do you know that thing? Back and forth discussion. Like, this man shouldn't know this, which means he's part of the group that bugged our office, which means that we've got the intel that he's part of the bad guys. And <laughs> there was a little bit more like, which side are you on? Back and forth, which was cool. but And yet they start to go a little bit odd in Firefly because they, they add ESP. Yeah. The, they, they, they need the help of the daughter of the kidnapped scientist. Because she's a parapsychologist with proven ESP abilities. And for the early to mid-70s, the serious scientific study of, of ESP was more of a thing. So it, was, it wasn't that far out, as it might seem. And yet it was, I'd say, a shift for the, this particular show. 
That one, that's another, that one has another moment that I want to point out, which is a, even when it's being silly and adding ESP, there is something a little bit more, we acknowledge our current science. Because when he super speeds a canoe with a knife, someone else gets to touch it, the knife's hot. (laughs) That's a little detail that I applaud. They've got little bits here. And the ESP stuff was, in retrospect, highly silly. But I wouldn't fault it for, at the time, going for that as its narrative because of that kind of approach within the scientific community at that time. And they didn't overuse it either. No. It was just like the bioluminescent laser, a just-past-the-edge technology that we're using as a MacGuffin. The ESP abilities she had, they weren't plot-changing, they were just a just-past-the-edge scientific field that factored into the plot. It was was not, oh, this is now a show about ESP. It's that we're dealing with the edges of science, and in 1974, that includes ESP. Yeah, she's and she's not even being very powerful about that. She's more like getting a vague idea about places she's not been, and mostly tripping into traps half of her own creation between here and there, and then getting rescued by Steve multiple times. And you mentioned him carving the canoe. I like that because that's an example of one of my favorite kind of bits in this show is the the unexpected but really, really useful uses of his bionics, where they are stranded in the swamplands and the bad guys have destroyed their boat. And he, not instantly, but over the course of like a few hours overnight, with the speed of his bionic arm and a hunting knife, digs out a canoe and carves a paddle. I loved those little unexpected uses of the bionics. And I think that shows a lot about the character of Steve Austin, that he'll come up with these things and why it's important to have somebody like him as the operative who has these superpowers. It's not just he's a trained soldier. He knows how to go and in and, and fight things and break things. And now he's just better at it. He's very well educated. He is trained as an astronaut, but educated in a lot of other ways. And he is innovative and flexible. And that's the kind of person you want to give these abilities to. Absolutely. And he he's a we're kind of moving from the the narrative into the characters themselves because there's so much about the characters that drive this. The fact that Steve is a consistently understandable and relatable guy throughout actually really helps. It helps with the narrative of the changing story type. He starts out as reluctant and annoyed. He goes into this almost a little stiff. His his James Bond action things, knowing what later Steve is like, there's something that now, even in just this short time, makes those earlier episodes feel like a guy putting on a face at doing retail because he knows what the customer expects. It's this, I'm supposed to be an agent, so I will be the suave agent you want if I'm stuck doing this. Hi. And then he relaxes into the job and everyone learns his sense of humor. He starts getting along with people and we see the later Steve character transition out into just being himself now. Oh yeah, this is my arm. And I think that's one of the ways in which we see these changes, not as they've just, someone has decided to make a change in the TV show, but the characters growing and the actors growing in the way they're portraying them. 
and the relationships between the characters growing in ways that make sense, as I say, if they're going to be working for years. There were some key differences, I think, in the, well, some some explicit differences in who the characters are, and some differences in the way the characters are portrayed from the beginning, in that in the pilot, the original TV movie, Steve Austin is not a military person. They specify that he's an astronaut, but he was a civilian NASA employee. Hmm. And there was a little friction between Steve, who is very smart and capable and fit and therefore you know, made the astronaut program, but who is not a military-minded person. There's that friction between him and the military people he's dealing with now as a test pilot, and of course the OSO people who now want him to be their operative. The fact that he was, in that context, an outsider, a loner, was very important. Later on, and I don't know if this was true in, I guess maybe it was true starting with the, first, the second TV movie, he's a colonel in the United States Air Force. He is someone with a military career and military training. He's still an astronaut, but his background is military, and for the rest of the series, he's Colonel Steve Austin. Oh, I hadn't noticed that change. Yeah, and I think that is significant, because at the beginning, in the, in the first pilot, he is kind of flaky. He's ever people are wondering where he is. He's going to be late for this test flight. He was walking out in the desert and communing with nature. And he's like, I don't know. Uh, he's not quite cyber hippie. Yeah, yeah. He's not quite cyber hippie. But com- compared to these Air Force people he's working for now as a test pilot, he's cyber hippie. He's he's uh, he's pretty flaky. Oh, yeah. He's like a a very mellow country music guy who knows how to fly high tech aircraft. I, I'm I'm gonna pull in a different piece of media. There is very much a I I see some of the uh, Green Lantern stories pulling some reference from this <laughs> for all their for various of their different characters with how they do this the the crashed airplane man gets a lot of abilities kind of thing. Oh and yeah, there, there's right. some similarities there, and he definitely turns superhero later on. And that hippie nature going away, I guess, was needed to get him where they wanted him. But I don't know. It made me think of that more when you're describing it like that. You're right. You're right. There is that Green Lantern. They they do resonate those two shows, mm-hmm. those two two properties. I mean, yeah. And uh, and there is definitely a change. We're talking about characters between um, Oliver Spencer in the pilot and then Oscar Goldman later on. Oh uh, yeah, Richard Anderson plays Oscar Goldman. And he starts out more of the, I'm the government manager who needs to keep this guy in line and becomes more of a friend and colleague to Steve Austin over time. And as we're saying, that makes sense. I don't, I don't think you could have taken a whole series of Steve Austin having this sharp conflict with Oliver Spencer. I kind I of- That would have gotten to be too much. I, I'm sad that we didn't get the transition between Spencer and Goldman. Because Spencer treated Steve as a a resource asset. Steve was deployed the same way you would a plane or a tank or a piece of equipment. Meanwhile, Goldman treat, is, thinks of Steve a little bit more as an operative with a set of abilities and treats him as a guy first that happens to be able to do a thing. And that's, I think, why I then saw Steve liking Goldman more. And I wish there was a chance for us to see Goldman being assigned much to Spencer's 
annoyance and them clashing with Steve kind of stuck in the middle could have been interesting if they were going for a longer overarching narrative aspect, but they never, they never did. This is a very episode by episode show in that sense. You, you come in for one story adventure. Yeah. And I don't think there really was any kind of transition between that first movie and the second movie. It was more of a, we're going to do this again, but we're going to have a reset because the organization was different. It's no longer the office of special operations. It's now the, the office of scientific intelligence We're we're going to move this more towards these are people who's, who are, are, are focused on science, but they're focused on science for the sake of national security, as opposed to we are the, uh, the black bag spooks who are going to get things done and you don't want to know how we do it Mm -hmm. of the OSO. And so it's not, I don't think there was any story of him transitioning away from Spencer's world to Goldman's world. It's just, they decided now we want to put the show in Goldman's world instead. Spencer's world no longer exists. Yeah, in some ways that means that first movie very standalone compared to the rest of the series. Right. And it was, and I think your description of Oliver Spencer seeing Austin as just a pure asset was was absolutely correct. I think that Spencer would have gone full Winter Soldier if he could have. You know, the mission's over, put Austin in the freezer, and uh, we'll thaw him out when we need him again. Because that would have been so much neater than having this person with a personality and his own will and everything else having to babysit him and keep him happy in between missions and keep him on mission when we send him to something that's that was just the the biggest headache of spencer's life it's useful that he's smart in the field but the fact that he's smart in how to get out of his hospital room after the mission and before the mission as well is the annoyance and and frustration he was like a tank that you can't park in a hangar when you're not using it and that of course was an annoyance to spencer as opposed to someone who contributes to this organization, the OSI, and who happens to have these special powers. The other character we see throughout this, and you talked about him uh, because he's the narrator in the pilot, is Rudy Wells, the doctor. Yes, Dr. Wells. And that's an interesting character. Um, his importance in the show ebbs and, and, and flows waxes and wanes at, at different points very central to the beginning but then again he's the doctor and the first movie was a medical drama like we were saying and we get different actors playing the role of rudy wells over the course of different movies and the tv series the fact that they replace him but don't change the name is interesting they want that continuity for the the person who it, who created this and one of the things that they establish in the pilot is that of all the people involved, Wells is the person who, from before all the bionic stuff, had this connection with Steve Austin. They were friends. They were colleagues. I'm not quite sure I understood how that worked. I mean, Steve Austin was a civilian NASA employee and a an astronaut. And Wells, therefore, apparently is a NASA flight surgeon and a psychological counselor, at least informally, and the world's foremost authority and researcher in cybernetics and bionics, and a a world-class surgeon who's able to personally implement 
his ideas. Wells is very much the comic book. He is a doctor and a scientist, and therefore he can do everything that involves doctoring and sciencing. Nuclear engineer, because remember, his arm and his eye and each of his legs have individual mini nuclear power sources. <laughs> That's true, although we do see that Rudy has a team. So maybe he's got a consulting nuclear engineer, but at least he knows enough to incorporate it into his bionics. And we do see him holding the scalpels to... Yeah, I I'm still bewildered by the idea of the small nuclear reactor in the eye. That's like not a place to put that. Uh, the, the legs and the arms are a problem, but putting it in the eye seems problematic. Oh, the eye had its own nuke? Yes, because the eye reads on Geiger counters in some of those episodes as its own source. Each oh, bionic has right. a radiation source, which means he, part of possible, as much as I like the reasonable explanations for Steve Austin's personality shift over the course of the series, you cannot debate the fact that he is getting a lot more radiation dose right next to his brain <laughs> the entirety of the series. I don't know if some of those later sillier episodes happened or if he is just really not here anymore by the end. So the, the last few seasons are Steve Austin's hallucinations due to his growing brain tumor. I need to watch this whole series again with that in mind. This is another instance of the I, <laughs> I find a thing that can swerve a show off the rails. That's very deep. But yeah, it, it reads on Geiger in that second movie, I believe. You're right. You're right. I never put that together because I knew that the, the legs and the arm had their own nuclear power plants because that's how they have the incredible strength, which they describe his arm as having the strength of a bulldozer. And his legs let him run at 60 miles an hour in, in addition to having tremendous strength. But I never thought I never uh, put it together that, yeah, the eye is also atomic because, like you say, it it. it they detected it because of the Geiger readings. Well, with that little bit of horror out of the way. <laughs> but yeah, they, they and, he, he's the Dr. Wells is part of the narrative at the beginning and he becomes useful later in part because they, they kind of have to introduce his limitations after the fact. And they do a decent job there of the, you know, he's stronger for these reasons, but, He's not going to do well in temperatures that his cybernetics don't work well in. He'll yeah. seize up. They they introduce like, oh, he can get this far, but not farther. And they use Dr. Wells to introduce some of those limits at that point. Once they're making a show of it and they need him to have obstacles to overcome instead of just being the hero that saves it. Right. Uh, Rudy Wells becomes increasingly the the source of information for Oscar Goldman and the source of information for the audience about bionics and their limitations and their strengths and things like you're saying the the cold temperatures being an achilles heel and that kind of thing and that, that does make sense to me because at the beginning when the we have steve austin and the other major character is spencer who is in many ways the antagonist to austin we need a sympathetic character someone who's on austin's side who's involved in all of this and in some ways, somebody who's stuck in the middle between Spencer and Austin, and that's Rudy Wells. As we introduce Oscar Goldman, and as we see Steve Austin and Oscar Goldman get closer, and they're the, the friendship unit in the show, we don't need Wells for that as much anymore. So we don't see as much of him anymore, and he kind of takes that secondary role. And as, as, as the doctor and scientist, he completed his thing, but he's got 
apparently enough different fields of study. He's off working on later projects, and we know at least one of the other projects he winds up working on, I believe, uh, the spinoff. Yes, so, yeah. So he's got other things he's going off and doing. We're following Steve Austin through the Six Million Dollar Man, and Wells is is off making other things <laughs> in this world. Possibly part of the reason why it's getting a little more sci-fi and high-tech over time if he's able to introduce more things to the world than get you know stolen and duplicated and copied and such. And I do suppose that once Steve Austin has his bionics installed and he knows how to use them and they're working well, we don't have to check in with Rudy as often. Yeah. He's not getting regular OS updates. <laughs> so we've got these characters, we've got this premise, and then we've got this series that changes over time. And we, we didn't watch the whole thing, of course, but we watched a pretty good sampling mm-hmm. throughout this. We watched the first two TV movies where we saw the change from medical drama to James Bond fighting bad guys selling missiles and subs. And then we started watching TV episodes, and we didn't watch the episodes completely in order, but but for the most part we did. We mentioned already that the Firefly episode, yes, which was another pretty good secret agent story, I thought, with the ESP and the kidnapped scientist. And I believe the next one in order was Day of the Robot. This one is pivotal, because it actually introduces something important to the series. That's right. The robot has the sound effect first, people. <laughs> the entirety of those TV movies, the entirety of the series up until that point, used a little bit of camera slowdown. But mostly it was just him lifting foam rocks. They start using the slowdown. They start using the noise of that kind of whooshing stutter step electronic sound for this robot to show that it's doing these impressive things and make it sound intimidating. Apparently they loved it because suddenly later he starts getting that sound effect applied to when our hero Steve Austin is doing the things. And that is, that's the iconic portion to this. It's, we can rebuild him. And then it's someone running with that noise in the background is how you make a, a parody reference to this series in pop culture from then on. But it didn't start with that. And I'm, I was so surprised. It was kind of shocking. To see that um, those early episodes in those movies where, where's the noise? Where's the bionic effect? They had, as you say, they sometimes slowed down the, um, the, the, the footage. And sometimes they added a metal fatigue noise. You'd hear things creaking before they, they broke. But they just, those shots were not that impressive. They give the impression of either, oh, yeah, he can lift that. He's kind of strong. And other times it was not, he has incredible powers, he's breaking that chain. It was more of a, wow, that's a weak chain, if this guy can break it one-handed. Oh, that's right, he's bionic. There wasn't as much special about it. When you add that noise to a chain being pulled out of a wall, or him breaking through a, a rock slide or something, it's, it's instantly, oh, there is a superpower being used here. It has nothing to do with the fact that what he's that the chain he's breaking is weak. It has to do with the fact that he can break chains. It's amazing what difference that makes. There's stylistic elements that don't click until then. And it's once it's there, the show takes off again. 
It right. feels a rebooty in that sense. And they don't immediately start using it for Steve Austin, but you're right. The first time we hear that iconic bionic strength noise is in Day of the Robot, and it's the robots whose whose powers come along with that noise. Day of the Robot also much darker than some of the other episodes surrounding it. It went it went creepy again for a moment. Seeing the robot without a face talking to people and such gets a little odd. Oh, yeah, you're right. And I think that this was they're they're dipping into the whole like the Westworld sort of uh, original version of Westworld feel and all that where you see a humanoid robot and suddenly its face is gone. But it was um it was the beginning of Steve Austin versus science at the same level as Steve Austin's powers, I think. Oh, yeah. And I think that was was an important turning point. It is it is very much strengthened by the fact that the robot involved is played by John Saxon, who, sadly, John Saxon passed away just a couple of weeks ago as we record this. And uh, he's certainly going to be missed because he's he was in so many great things, many more of which I'm sure we're going to talk about eventually on the podcast. But yeah, he plays a character who is a a friend of Austin's who is involved in a a high security missile guidance system and he's carrying the decoding cards for this missile guidance system. Yeah. Missile guidance system was always a great MacGuffin in Cold War stories. It's not a missile itself which is big and bulky and which we already used in the second movie, but a missile guidance system, well, that's very important. It can be whatever size we need it to be and look like whatever we need it to be for the sake of our story. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And the, the, he's not even bringing the whole thing. He's bringing like the credit card you use to activate it kind of like little plastic diskette thing. So the, you get a little you get some fun. Hide it on my person. Swap it out for a decoy kind of tiny MacGuffin tricks. And you also get some very excellent acting of the. The difference between the friend and the robot, because he he gets to play two distinct characters there, and he does a great job he of, does an of that excellent too. Job. Because the bad guys, of course, replace John Saxon's character with a robot duplicate, a life model decoy, if you will, in order to. Since Steve is essentially escorting and bodyguarding his friend to the location where this missile guidance system test is going to occur, the idea the plan of the bad guys is replace him with the robot steve will bring the robot to the place where the missile guidance system is and then the robot will steal for us the missile guidance system all of which skips over the fact that you've been able to build a super strong robot who can be used to replicate people and no one will notice that has got to be at least as valuable as the missile guidance system, quite possibly more so. Absolutely. This is this is inventing a, a, a trip to the moon in order to get a better view of your roof. Yeah, I've, this is- I've perfected nanotechnology, and using that, I have built the world's best olive fork. <laughs> exactly. Like- Really? really? Back up a little bit. I- Tell me more about the technology. And in some ways, because of that weird scale issue... My favorite, I, my, one of my favorite moments of the entirety of us watching this series was a bit in this episode where the, their Android replacement seizes up because it's been the one driving the car and it seizes up in a way that can 
I can only describe as accidentally turning on sticky keys. <laughs> but it's sticky keys itself into a ditch. And Steve, he's at peace with his cybernetics now, goes to secretly fix move the car by like lifting it up and putting it over the robot not knowing any better grabs the other end of the car and they just move it like a couch for a moment (laughs) and seeing seeing the look on steve on on our character steve austin's face as he goes um (laughs) you shouldn't be able to do that one moment please that was some of the best like it's dramatic serious but it also just took a tiny second for me to Flip the switch in my mind, and it's brilliant slapstick, and it can be both at the same time. And it is one of the the saving graces uh, of that episode is the limitations on that robot technology, and that yeah, they've built the robot to be undetectable by programming it to duplicate human behavior that it sees around it. There's also the fact that the robot is not completely autonomous; it is in some kind of radio communication constantly with the bad guy's control center, which looks kind of cheap and shabby, which I kind of like. Yeah. They don't have an enormous government budget behind them. And the two technicians who are helping the main scientist and the guy who's paying for it all are not the most competent in the world. It's like three bad guys in the back of a U-Haul. Yeah. And they are like, they've got the big computers with the spinning tapes and they're putting in specific tapes and running certain sequences when they need to. And, (laughs) kind of operating this it's um the djs uh, of death yeah it's like it's it's cloud-based super <laughs> technology it's like a killer robot as a service <laughs> and i like that limitation it shows that okay we can't make an autonomous secret agent robot but we can do this and uh, and if only we had better technicians on this end to keep things moving and not crash the car he's driving we might be better off so that was definitely a turning point in a few ways. And a few episodes later, we start to hear the bionic sound when Steve Austin is using his bionic powers, as opposed to when the robot is taking big haymaker punches at Steve Austin. Mm-hmm. The next episode that we watched in sequence is Straight On Till Morning. Oh, goodness. And you want to you find the episode where, okay, now we're into anything goes, the lid has blown off science fiction, this might be it. Because this is the one where Steve Austin meets aliens from a UFO. Psychic self-immolation upon death uh, aliens who have arrived here and immediately realized that it's deadly and need to leave. (laughs) Now, I don't have a whole lot more to say about that episode because there really isn't a lot of story. No, it's not. That one felt meandering in a weird way, but it also shows you that when it decides to to jump the shark, it jumps the full space shark and goes for it. And it plays with very it still plays within its scientific bubble. There is a an issue of a very world of the uh, war of the worlds style issue of our biology actually doesn't work with your environment the way we the way it should if we are to work together and it has some very severe social issues of the we're just trying to leave and these people who are scared of us now because of how things went down are not accepting that as an answer and there's there's some issues here and it it gets dark that one goes dark as well but it yeah, it gets dark in a way that 
the fact that it is so out there science fiction-y makes it a little more kid-friendly in some ways. Mm-hmm. It's dark about something that's not really happening, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. I'm a little surprised that the... I was a little disappointed, I should say, that the story wasn't a little more interesting and coherent. That one was written by DC Fontana, who is better known, I think, by most as one of the better writers on a an earlier science fiction TV show we don't talk about. Oh. It, and it, she it, went it on to write these. It definitely had some of that feel to it. And uh, and very, it was very straightforward plot. You know, they, they can't survive here. Humans can't survive contact with them. They have no way to get home. We call find the, a way to get them home. Call off the road trip and go back. <laughs> right. That's the... The the bad scenario of alien interaction. We've got some later interactions. This isn't the last time they dip into that. No, no, that was just the beginning of the the outer space and the uh, visitors from elsewhere and elsewhen. Because the last episode that we watched in the in the sequence of the series was the one that I probably remember most from when I was a kid. I dare say that for a while there, it was probably my favorite episode or two-parter from the six million dollar man i've got a smile on my face rethinking about that this this one was funny and fun the secret of bigfoot yep we've got cybernetic man versus bigfoot and it gets weirder from there it's cybernetic man versus bigfoot on a giant fault line in the woods and bigfoot starts kicking his butt when they run into each other until he rips off his arms and discovers Bigfoot's a robot. <laughs> like, talk about pulling twists, and it keeps getting twistier. This is the one that had a lot of influence on my playing with G.I. Joes, because this was very much into the adventure team era of uh, the Six Million Dollar Man, where it's him and Oscar Goldman who's helping this uh, this geologic research program to plant sensors that will give us warning about her uh, uh, about um earthquakes and the geologists are kidnapped <gasps> well first the geologist sensors detect a some kind of a thermal volcanic uh, uh vent where there shouldn't be one and then they go missing mm-hmm. and then one of them shows back up with stories about bigfoot and they start finding the giant footprints in the ground near where the geologists were taken. And it just gets wilder from there because now we've got an earthquake on its way. And this one has actually like multiple things going on because Steve is like out of commission for a good portion of the end of episode one and the start of episode two of this two parter. Like we get other people doing things instead of just the, the, the $6 million man. There's a little bit more of that team aspect of their adventure team stylings. That's true. And the army is there, but the army isn't there to do any fighting. They're there to provide logistics to this scientific program. And then they are there to have search parties looking for, for Colonel Austin because he fought when he had this fight with Bigfoot, like you say, when he was looking for the, the scientists as this terrific fight with Bigfoot tears off Bigfoot's arm and which causes Bigfoot to run away. Understandably. Understandably. And it shows that Bigfoot is a robot. Or is bionic. That that was kind of odd, yeah. And Steve follows Bigfoot and discovers 
the reason for these weird readings about some kind of a, a volcanic vent nearby, it was actually an underground base of these aliens. Now, they were not from Earth, is that right? Yeah, they're, they're aliens with uh, time, like light time travel abilities who are here to do like anthropological study of human society growing from the caveman up to a, a an unspecified point in our future at which point they'll leave so this group has been here for two of their years from their perspective and a couple of hundred years from uh earth's perspective and, and built- bigfoot's kind of their errand creature slash scare people away so they're not discovered creature he's lurch <laughs> I like that. And he's played by Andre the, the Giant, Giant. Who is in as a kid. This is Andre the Giant from wrestling. And we're getting to watch him fight the Bionic Man, the six million dollar oh. man. How cool is that for a ten year old? Absolutely. And it was it was very cool. That episode also those episodes had a really, really excellent bit which kind of shows you this the the evolution of style and also the the social approach that all of uh six million dollar man has because one of the aliens starts very actively flirting with him (laughs) and and steve's response is a i appreciate it but no thank you also because he also i believe had a girlfriend with her own spinoff series at that time that's right and that's something we didn't watch partly because it would bring us off into that whole different branch was we didn't watch any of the jamie summers episodes though she has a cameo in the bigfoot episode and we didn't watch any of the bionic woman Mm -hmm. i didn't watch the bionic woman as much i think it had as much to do with what night it was on tv as as much as anything else we were watching something else and this was pre vcr but um but you're right that was another part of it i think also as they realized the show's audience was more kids they got more away from the he's whining and dining and, and other things with a woman in every city to which he is sent as a secret agent, less James Bondy stuff like that. And more, he's a handsome, capable guy, so lots of beautiful women who he happens to encounter start to fall in love with him, and he just kind of, thank you, ma'am, but not interested. But- there's something there's something very much about the polite guy they they have the polite gentleman he is of when the alien asks him well, what is attractive like in your world he like puts down the giant rock he's lifting and turns and like well that depends on individual people's preferences i usually find intelligence interesting and such and like and he goes into this little like well it's about it's about the people between not the not the looks or anything in a like where did this little ted talk come from it's delightful go this show i didn't expect this but this is lovely i kind of expected him to pull out a guitar at that point well ma'am it might go something like this absolutely it's it's this it's this weird little tangent but it also tells you that this show is you know no if we bring up a social point we're gonna acknowledge it we're gonna look at it for a moment (laughs) not for too long if it gets in the way of the rocks falling and no one needs to die but we'll take the time and say it that was kind of cool they, they approach their sociology they approach their their cybernetics biology they'll be on the edge there they'll He'll be talking with an alien who built a Bigfoot to work as a bodyguard, but they'll talk about it for a moment. <laughs> this show has as much words as fisticuffs when done well. 
And it's worth mentioning the alien who falls in love with Steve Austin uh, is played by Stephanie Powers. That's an actor we will come back to at some point in the future of the IWMP. Ooh, that's good to know. And I also like the fact that among the aliens, they had distinct personalities and they did not get along. Oh, yeah. This is an upset board meeting <laughs> with a was, guy who doesn't want to be here as one of the team. They have a miniature version of their time control technology that lets them essentially appear to teleport across a room when really they're just changing their time perspectives. And as the guy who invented this is about to describe it and show it off, they cut to another guy who just rolls his eyes like, again, we have to listen to this again, you and your little box with the buttons. It, it, it jump cuts. We know what it does. Stop explaining it. <laughs> like, that's kind of what we run into. I'm still not sure how Steve Austin's bionic eye allows him to track people who are moving in that way. And he changes the frame rate, I guess. And the processing, the clock speed of his, his optical processors in his brain or something. I want to, I want to watch him catch up from lag because he's just extended that amount of time over <laughs> it. So he's like, uh, okay. Okay. They're back in sync now. And they do. Well, this was a two parter also. Mm -hmm. So they, there, there seemed to be, when when they left the TV movies, there was more two-parters at the beginning. Then they had some smaller episodics through the middle. And then it saw it looked like there was more two-parters towards the end of the series as well. Yeah, every especially in the second half of the run, every season had one or two two-parters that were, you know, big audience hooks. And and we waited one day between watching part one and part two of The Secret of Bigfoot. Imagine being a 10-year-old sci-fi fan and having to wait an entire week to watch, to see what happened to Steve Austin and his fight against Bigfoot. Last you saw, he fell down in a corridor because <laughs> it was spinning too much and he was being carted away. But the fact that Steve is with all these aliens in their underground base for so much of this uh, two-parter is why, as you say, we don't see a lot of him with the rest of the operation and Goldman and the army are spending most of their time looking for Steve. By the end of the series... You could have gotten away with a Goldman episode where Goldman has to go do something and Steve can't. And Goldman is not physically able to do the things, but he can get himself into situations in a different way and out of them in a different way. They could have done that episode by the end. And that's where it's it's called the six million dollar man. But its world is bigger than Steve. Oh, now I know what... Uh, I want to save something for later, but you've just given me an idea. Okay. And in the in the Bigfoot episode, in addition to the fact of these aliens, which never really... Nobody else learns of the existence of these aliens, because they do occasionally take somebody to either learn from them or to stop them from doing something that's going to give away their secret, like the geologists who uh, had the sensors that they were planting, and they wipe their memories. But the other big conflict in this episode is the fact that there is, in fact, going to be a big earthquake that is threatening populated areas. And they, the, the one, now that they know from the sensors that have been planted that this is going to happen, the one way they can figure out how to stop this earthquake from killing lots of people is to create a different earthquake on a tributary fault with an underground atom bomb. Which is so the most science team answer possible. 
any time that your solution to devastation is explosives in proper locations, there's this kind of style of dramatic tension and raw science that starts happening. It was another good example of how this show liked to use stock footage. Oh goodness! And that, or, or or clips from other things, and that they establish they have a few shots of large ordnance being loaded into an airplane and the airplane taking off, and then we hear someone saying that oh the device is ready at the site and the laser drill almost has the shaft down to the right depth, and so that's just that's all just happening in the background while they're looking for Steve Austin because. If they have to set off, they have to set off this nuke by a certain amount of, by a certain time on the clock, in order to to prevent the big earthquake. And Austin is out there somewhere. We don't know that he's going to survive this nuke going off. Yeah, I, I, they 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 are just the with their stock footage. They are just the right amount of new budget for what they're doing and small TV budget stretch it for what they've got. They 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 use what they've got when they've got it, and. They 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 milk it for the tension when they when they have it. It's some of the answers are quick to be found, and some of them are dragged out in order to make sure that the tension curve of what they're looking at is always at the right level. And they do a, a good job with that. They do an excellent job of that. And of course, part of the issue that the that Goldman and and the others don't know is that Steve's not the only thing in jeopardy. This nuke is also going to destroy the alien base. Mm-hmm. Which also sounds very dangerous because now you don't have you you haven't just irradiated an area or irradiated area and thrown a guy with small nuclear reactors in him into the wind. You're also blowing up an entire unknown alien facility full of all of their stuff and who whatever that'll do. This is layers upon layers of maybe not the best plan, <laughs> and that creates the the strongest conflict between Steve and the aliens, which is. He learns what what the plan is, wants the bomb to go off because it's going to save thousands, maybe millions of people from this bigger earthquake. But the aliens are trying to stop it because it's going to destroy their base. And eventually it does go off. It does succeed in preventing the earthquake. And then Steve goes and helps rescue the aliens from the base that's been so heavily damaged. He, he teams up with Bigfoot in the end to move stuff and help them out. That was kind of cool. That was cool. Yes. And Steve Austin gets to say, I kind of like it better when we're on the same side. Absolutely. Steve Austin and Bigfoot. Can we please get a, well, again, I'll save this for later. Okay. But that was, that was the last of the episodes that we watched, and um, in some ways, to me, that is the Six Million Dollar Man, and always will be, is him with aliens and Bigfoot in the forest. <laughs> I'm just imagining, like, a, a commemorative photo from their vacation with that set up. <laughs> just... Well, we've been talking about this for a while now. Absolutely. So we could talk about it longer. We could watch more of these and talk about it more. But I suppose we need to answer some questions, don't we? We do. We need to we need to get to our final answers here. So, first one, TV series, binge or no binge? I don't think this is a binge. I think this is a watch specific episodes if you want to watch it, but you don't need to binge it. As fun as it was. And this is where I get into the whole I, my whole opinion of it in the end. There's a lot that the 6 million dollar man does well. But 
there's a lot of other media and such that is now doing bits of what it was doing and getting the chance to dive in on those sections. I think that for writing reasons and reference reasons, there's great episodes that should be watched of this show to learn from it. Not because it did anything wrong, because it did some things so very right. But I don't think the whole show was as fun a sit-through. There was some slow parts to this show. And not just when they used slow-mo effects for cybernetics. There were some odd parts that were hard to get through in weird interactions and such. I enjoyed it, but it's not something I need to go back and binge. And it's not something I'm going to say that for. And maybe this is one of those purely generational things, but I, I'm i still going to say binge on this. Just immerse yourself in the 70s-ness of it all. <laughs> My goodness, the widest bell-bottoms you have ever seen on TV. I don't know how you could actually see those pants on a 1970s-era TV. We could just about get all of those bell-bottoms on screen, watching it on a modern big screen wide LCD. Oh, so they, yeah, he starts out with normal straight leg jeans, but he just spins his leg in a circle <laughs> fast enough, and he he'll, he pushes it out. It's like spinning pizza dough. So yeah, the seventies fashion, the seventies style, the seventies Cold War secret agent plots in the first half, and the seventies adventure team plots in the second half. I I think this is fun to immerse one's self into, so I'd say go ahead and binge. And it's available on uh, the NBC app, by the way. They've got they've got all of it there. So yep. So we have our answers, and they differ on the binge or no binge. So the next question is: revive, reboot, or rest in peace? I'm gonna make a note because I always do when we're getting to this question if something's already happened to it. Ironically enough, the spinoff, The Bionic Woman, already got a 2007 reboot series. So this has been looked at before, but they looked at the spinoff getting its show instead of it. So this is, if we're looking at the $6 million man, I'm not sure what to say. There were movies that wrapped up the series later on in its life. Apparently something called Bionic Ever After. <laughs> Things like that. So the story itself would have a world you could go back to that wrapped itself up with Steve Austin's story. But maybe there's more in its world that you could do. But as for the $6 million man narrative itself, I don't know if it needs a reboot. I think I think a lot of, once again, a lot of other pieces of media have pulled parts from this, have have taken a, a bionic arm here and a bionic eye there and gone with it, I'm not sure you need the full set anymore, or if it would even feel the same in a way to make it worth it in a new thing. I know that I'm not going to say rest in peace, because there's more here to work with. I don't know that I want to see a reboot Although, if you did, it would be distinctly different, partly because science has caught up with the $6 million man in so many ways. And there are real questions about human augmentation through part replacement. And there are questions about, you know, if someone is an amputee and has replacement limbs that make him a better runner than he would have been without these, how is he going to be competing? Should he be competing in track and field events 
on par with everybody else and and vision augmentation and hearing augmentation we we are starting to go beyond the we can help people who have lost some capability by giving them replacements to as long as we're doing that we can give them more capabilities so it's kind of catching up and there are different social questions about that there are ethical questions around that and while those might be interesting, it would be very, very different making a show like this today than it was in the 70s when this was more out there science fiction. So I'd be interested in, in a reboot, but I am not 100% sure that I'm looking for a reboot. Maybe what we need is the revival then. I would be more interested in a revival because, as you pointed out, we do get this, the idea that this is part of a bigger world. I... I would be interested in seeing maybe the future of the OSI and what else it's doing or a spinoff. What's happening? The OSI is not just Oscar Goldman and Steve Austin. What else does the OSI do? Something you mentioned earlier made me start to think Oscar Goldman probably had a pretty interesting career. Mm -hmm. I want to see some stories about the 60s or the late 50s at a young OSI operative named Oscar Goldman. And what is his background and what kind of secret agent work was he doing before he went into management? Oh, yeah. If if you want to give us something that has that James Bondy feel of the early series, definitely go back. Do a, do a revival that is in its time then. Do the Goldman story like that. I'm, I'm with you on this. He could have some potential. In some ways, Steve's story was told, but everyone else's is there. Right. If you want a modern version, go towards the modern day and have the OSI was disbanded. It was removed. The Goldman Corporation, a private entity, <laughs> rises up and hires the famous Dr. Wells. And suddenly, don't give us the $6 million man. Give us a team of three $3 million operatives <laughs> and have them working on that stuff there and have that team dynamics. And you could have some interesting stuff there of a, the sequel project kind of playing off there. Oh, I could like be that. interesting, but you going in either direction in time off of that core could be interesting. And there's gotta be more stories about Rudy Wells too. We oh, talked yeah. about how amazing it is that he's the super scientist. He can do everything. Well, maybe there are stories behind how he can do everything and, and what he's done with that in the past. Perhaps there's a good one shot about Rudy Wells, a man who apparently is able to make stuff far beyond what anyone else is doing in a world that started to show some of these other things going on. Did Rudy do something to himself to accelerate himself to be able to do this? Is there a, a Jekyll Hyde going on there on that side? You could, if you're, if you're going to mimic Frankenstein on, on uh, Austin, on Steve's side, can you mimic a different story in a different place with another character oh, here? I like that. You've got some narrative options. Yep. And then there is uh, the the buddy team of Steve Austin and Bigfoot. <laughs> now, I do believe there Bigfoot does return in a later episode. There's like a return of Bigfoot. Wait, what? We haven't watched. Oh, my God. But okay, I do so want to see the two of them fighting crime somewhere. Okay, I'm removing my don't binge. I'm saying binge because <laughs> now I do have to say so. that and I can't not say that. I, I, I'm, I'm literally changing that. Binge the show then. If there's more Bigfoot, binge it. <laughs> so I think I think sometime after we uh, we finish recording, we're going to have to go and watch the rest of the Bigfoot stuff. Oh, goodness. So 
Yeah, I think we're we're we have differing opinions on binge or no binge, although yours might be changing. <laughs> and yeah, we're both open to maybe reboot, but definitely revival. Yeah. Let's show show us more of the the OSI extended universe. I also just want to know what uh the newer version of the sound effect is like. <laughs> oh no, that doesn't it, it'll be digitally sampled, but it would be the same. Uh, same so- same sound, same oh, effect. Oh sure. Oh yeah. Why not? Just just a, just a, a new bionic team sitting around in a break room. You ever notice that little noise when we're doing the things? Yeah, that whooshing sound. It's like, <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much for uh, for downloading this podcast and listening. We uh, we really enjoyed this, and we'll be back in a couple of weeks with more tales of media from the twentieth century. And uh, in the meantime, Ian, where can people find you? I'm on Twitter as Item Crafting, on YouTube as Item Crafting, and on Twitch as Item Crafting Live. And you can find me on Twitter at by Matthew Porter. You can find me online at MatthewFPorter.com. And you can also find me on Twitch uh, as by Matthew Porter. And you'll find me especially doing things very late in the night or early morning, Friday night, Saturday morning, if you like mellow games mostly running on ipads you found a niche (laughs) i figure well i get home i have have an engagement that gets me home late around one o'clock saturday morning on fridays i'm always staying up and playing a game for an hour or so anyway i figured well why not put this on twitch oh yeah and you can find the podcast at immproject.com And you'll find there links to our Patreon. Thank you very much if you're able to support. And if you can't support us on Patreon, please do share the the link to the podcast with others. Consider going to iTunes, uh, leaving us a review with as many stars as you are comfortable doing. Five is nice. And uh, if you can support us on Patreon, terrific. You can also find our shop if you like T-shirts and coffee mugs and things. All that's linked from our website, our Discord as well. And you'll find the podcast on Twitter at IMMPCast. And we'd love to hear from you. Uh, what's your favorite episode of the $6 million Bigfoot? Things like that. You know, we'd <laughs> love to know from you and hear your opinions. Absolutely. Get in touch with us on Twitter. Get in touch with us on the contact page on our website. And we would like to hear from you. And you'll hear from us, as I say, in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, go find something new to watch. <laughs>